Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra on this Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 13th of June, 2023, which happens to be the birthday of my oldest child. So, happy birthday, Damien. We've been talking about thermodynamics for the last three or four lectures, I guess, and spending most of our time either on the first law of thermodynamics, the classical first law, and also we have introduced the Gibbs-free energy equation. And we talked about enthalpic considerations of methylation patterns on uh, DNA relative to protein binding. Today, we're going to move further into thermodynamics. And yes, we are going to have to talk about entropy. So let's get directly into this because we only have 30 minutes. Now, the term entropy is used different ways in different contexts, and often it's inappropriately used in common language, but I think most people get confused about it because it sounds contrarian. So because it sounds contrarian, you can take the definition of entropy and plug it into um, a series of premises and conclusions such as in a square of opposition logical formula. Now the root, and we could do that, but we're not going to do that today because I want to get into the thermodynamics. But I just want you to understand that the word entropy gets thrown around a lot, and I've defined it many times. I'm going to define it here very specifically. Now the root problem about this contrarian understanding of entropy is because that there is a close association of the mathematical expression for entropy in what's known as statistical thermodynamics. And then in opposition to that, free energy considerations, uh, where entropy plays a role in that equation, in biochemical living systems. So the thermodynamic property entropy is, of course, associated with physical quantities of thermal energy and temperature. Remember the T delta S part of the equation. While the entropy that is most important in, for example, biochemical signaling or enzymatic reactions is based on cellular dynamics. So that's a system aspect that is unique to biological systems. Signaling, that's because signaling is both an enthalpic and entropic consideration. And it allows for the calculation of Gibbs free energy. Therefore, there is an intrusion of the second law of thermodynamics. Okay? Now, remind you about the first law. It's simply the conservation of energy. Remember, delta E of the universe is delta E of the system plus delta E of the surrounding area equals zero, right? And remember the Gibbs free energy equation, G equals U, which is internal energy, minus TS, which is absolute temperature times final entropy, plus PV, which is pressure volume absolute pressure and final volume. 
Remember that enthalpy is the sum of that internal energy and the product of pressure and volume. So enthalpy H is specifically U plus PV, but we talk about delta H, and we're going to talk about delta uh, S for entropy, because measuring actual enthalpy or entropy is really hard because we do not have an understanding of entropy as an individual state, only as transitions from one to another. Same with enthalpy. Remember how we went through that derivation? I'm sure you do. We used it for enthalpy to talk about specific heat and the whole discussion of mass and delta T. Remember that? We were talking about biochemical reactions. We're talking about how we can describe enthalpy changes as either endothermic or exothermic. Well, the same kind of thing could be done with entropy. Okay. So I want to get into that discussion today. So entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, I guess I'll define it as this way. So the definition of the change in entropy, which is capital S, denoted capital S, is when the amount of heat Q is added. So delta S equals Q over T, where T is temperature, capital T. So that's a mathematical equation. Another way of looking at it is, this is now involving the second law of thermodynamics, the total entropy of an isolated system never decreases. Okay? So it's different than enthalpy. That's why you have the T delta S. That's why it's defined as a product of temperature times entropy. Right? Right. Okay, so hopefully we got that right in our mind. Now, another way of looking at entropy is going from an ordered system to a disordered system. Now, this is where this contrarian phenomenon starts to um, intrude on what should just be a pretty straightforward thermodynamic uh, conversation. Now, entropy is indeed a measurement of the disorder of a system. So, with that in mind, we can redefine the second law by saying natural processes tend to move toward a state of greater disorder from a state of more order. Okay. So, you know, we have examples of this constantly in existence. If you put milk and uh, sugar, table sugar, in coffee, which I wouldn't recommend because I like my coffee black. Um, but if you do put milk and sugar in your coffee and stir it, what do you wind up with? You wind up with a coffee drink that is uniformly ick, milky, and sweet. Now, there's no amount of continued stirring that will get the milk and the sugar to come out out of solution, right? Won't happen. You would have to um, dehydrate that sample, probably freeze it in liquid nitrogen, and then you would have to extract, right, sucrose. And then the milk you couldn't extract as milk, you would have to then take all the different components of milk, which are protein, and of course, uh, sugars as well, right? The milk sugar. 
uh, lactose. Okay. And water itself, right? All right. So you know that that entropy is everyday life. Another example of order disorder when you're thinking about uh, weather phenomena, particularly this time of year in the Midwest where I grew up, we used to have tornadoes. So when a tornado, that vortex hits a building like a barn, there is obviously a lot of damage. Now, you never see a tornado approach a pile of damaged, destroyed barn. And then once the tornado goes past, the barn is built, right? So that never happens. Not just it would be unusual, but happen. It never happens. Now, thermal equilibrium is a very similar process in that the uniform final state actually has more disorder than the separate temperatures in the initial state. Okay, so you can go from order to disorder. When everything is perfectly ordered, right, everything is separated out. And when everything is disordered, such as in a solution, all of the individual components are in that solution. They're combined in some way. Right? So there's another contrarian um, invey of how people get confused about entropy. Right? Of course. Now, think about living systems when an individual is developing, growing. Okay, or think about the evolution of species from a genera. Both of those processes, what are they doing? Are they increasing or decreasing order? Well, if we think about differentiation, they're increasing order, right? You start with a bunch of stem cells, right, progenitor cells, and you end up with all these terminally differentiated cells, which then form uh, differentiated uh, organs, right, in, in a human body. So... You could ask the question right now, does that violate the second law of thermodynamics? Obviously, no, because those are not isolated systems. The growing child into the adult is not an isolated system. So the energy is coming in, right? Energy is necessary to have that developmental differentiating um, event. And so where's the energy coming into the system? It's coming in the form of nutrition, food, right? Kilocalories, right? And if it's talking about something like a plant, right? Or, or even like where the food ultimately comes from, you get photosynthesis, right? You get the fixation of carbon dioxide into carbohydrate via photosynthesis and the splitting of water to make molecular oxygen, driving electrons to, to reduce NADP to NADPH, which NADPH is the reductive um, bios, uh, biosynthetic source of the ability to synthesize glucose from reducing CO2 to that six carbon sugar, you said, through the three carbon intermediate. So all of that is obviously order, right? But that, again, is not an isolated system. So if you think about the entire system, energy is coming from uh, 
you know, the sun and the sun and water uptake and the plant then photosynthesizes, generates mass. That mass is consumed by animals. And then humans consume some animal tissue and some plant tissue. So that's an open system. Got it? Because you've got sunlight, you've got gases in the atmosphere. And all of that is relative to an entire system, which you could then extrapolate out to the universe. So the second law of thermodynamics is not violet because it's one that defines essentially a vector of time. So that such that processes will occur that are not reversible. And of course, that means that when you drop a fine bone china cup on a terraza floor and it breaks, that terraza floor and that cup are within an open system. You're never going to get that cup coming back to the hand with the tea or the black coffee in it so that it's back intact in some long-term effect of time. It's never going to happen because you're in an open system. So all the energy involved in the breaking of that bone china cup and all the spilling of all the black coffee on the terrazzo floor, that energy Whatever is lost in that system and whatever order has gone to disorder, the system itself is compensating because the system is the entire universe. But still we say that entropy is always increasing. Right? Now remember that entropy is in relationship to enthalpy, the change in enthalpy minus T delta S equals delta G. That is free energy. See? You have to understand, you have to remember the dynamics of the equation. Now, what about unavailability of energy? Now, the physicists have a cool term for that. They call it heat death. <laughs> so that basically is another consequence of the second law of thermodynamics stated in as, as such um, in any normal natural process. Some of the energy we're talking about in terms of trans, translating it into matter and energy equivalence becomes unavailable to do useful work. Not 100% efficiency. So if you look at the universe as a whole, it seems inevitable that as more and more energy is converted to unavailable forms, the ability to do work anywhere in the universe will it gradually disappear. So that's called heat death of the universe, you see? Right. So there's also this statistical interpretation of entropy in the second law. Let me go through this. A macrostate of a system is specified by giving its macroscopic properties. And we talk about these all the time temperature, pressure, volume, and so on. The microstate of a system describes the position and the velocity of every event particle distributed in that system. 
So another way of looking at it is for every macrostate, there are one or more microstates. Okay. N plus one. Or N plus dot dot dot. Okay. Now we've talked about this before, and I'm going to just pass over this. But another way of considering the statistical interpretation of entropy in the second law is thinking about when you toss a coin or flip a coin. And you think about the macro states. For example, you flip a coin four times, and let's say you get four heads. So that would be H, 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 H. Now that would be, the macro state would give you four heads, but the number of microstates is only one. Okay. It's only one derivative of that. Okay, Same thing happens if you have four tails. But if you have three heads, one tail, two heads, two tails, or one head, three tails, you understand that you're going to make more microstates. Okay? Because the um, juxtaposition of heads to tails is going to be different in each of those random tosses. Okay? All right. So... You can assume that each microstate can be equally probable. So every time you flip the coin, it's equally probable it's going to be head or tail. So the prob possib probability, excuse me, of each macrostate would depend basically on how many microstates are in it. So the number of microstates quickly, quickly becomes very large. So if you have not a, a you know if you have one coin, they have a hundred coins instead of just one coin or two or three or four, you're going to have any number, right, of microstates. So you're going to get a quantum development, a logarithmic growth, a geometrical expansion of the microstates. Right? And the larger you move out of that, the more coins you flip, the less the probability is for let's say all 100 coins, to give you all heads every four times you flipped it, you see? Okay. So we can say that the second law doesn't forbid certain processes. So all microstates are still equally likely, but some of them would, as you expand out, have an extraordinarily or extremely low probability of occurring. So uh, think about a small mountain lake freezing, okay, when it's you know, dead winter at 12,000 feet in the Colorado Rockies. Right? But now think about that lake freezing on a hot summer day. Well, you know, could that happen? Well, the probability of that, the possibility of that happening could fall into some realm of understanding if you thought about the entire system playing a role here, right? Like where the position of the Earth is relative to the position in the solar system and where the sun is and where the solar system itself is in the galaxy, where the galaxies are in that sub-region of the cosmos. And then within that, where, where millions of galaxies, galaxies are organized, you could see that at some time that could happen in that one summer day, right? But the probability is like really, 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 really low, okay? So you get the idea of what we're talking about here. Remember that enthalpy is the amount of a heat content. So go back to enthalpy so you remember this, okay? And so enthalpy, just like with entropy, you express it as a change in enthalpy. 
So you've got to do that. Now, this allows me to get into a discussion of something that most of you probably haven't heard before. We're going to talk about ergodic systems, E-R-G-O-D-I-C. Now, ergodic systems relate to systems or processes, so this could be a biochemical process, with the property that given sufficient time, those systems will include or will impact on all of the different individual places in a given space. And you can actually represent that statistically when you give a reasonably large selection of points on a grid. So there's something called the ergodic hierarchy, okay, to make it a little bit more complicated. And that is a central part of the theory of ergodic. And it is a hierarchy of properties that a dynamic system like a living system could possess. See where this is going to involve now, enthalpy and entropy eventually, mostly entropy. So it's five levels have to do with mixing, okay? And so we're going to go into the five levels in detail next lecture. I just want to tell you that it has to do with a mixing phenomenon because we're talking about probability, right? Now, this ergodic hierarchy is a mathematical theory. But because it's mathematical, it's going to have foundations in statistics, therefore statistical physics, statistical biology, statistical chemistry. And obviously, because what I've already explained to you, ergodic hierarchy is going to involve a discussion of randomness and therefore the nature of chaos and chaos theory. So what I'm going to do for the next couple of minutes is just take the ergodic hierarchy and confine it into biochemical hierarchies, right? This is, this is me doing this. <laughs> so it's a thought experiment. Here we go. A phospholipase right, is tethered to the inner leaflet of a plasma membrane, usually via a lipid like phosphatidylinositol. When that lipid tether is geometrically repositioned, for example, via a signaling phenomenon involving, I don't know, G-protein coupled receptor, which is, of course, common. That phospholipase begins to move in, a, in, in that entire space in the membrane, a 3D oscillation according to a temporal displacement and because it's a membrane catalyzer, membrane-organized system, usually at the microsecond level. So the physical geometrical state of the enzyme can be completely determined by a specification of some position X and the momentum P, which is associated with the center of the mass of the phospholipase. So if we have coordinates like that, we can generate metrics, numerical values for X and P. So if it is then determined that x, that's the position, remember, and function in a discrete vector space, 
what we can obtain, according to this ergodic theory, is a phase space capital X of the system. That's known as the state space. So think about all the possible positions that possible life is could take on as it's oscillating. So what you can do is simplify this it, it, just for purposes of getting into an understanding of this entire ergodic theory associated with entropy. Simplify it by just think about two-dimensional space, like on a piece of paper. For the phospholipase, essentially moving up and down, and that will provide a, a series of positions. And with the mass, you will be able to obtain what? The momentum, right? Okay, so this is all, I think it's following pretty well into place. So I just, I just wrote this and put this together. So I think it's making some pretty good sense. So again, you got the inner leaflet of the membrane. You got the phosphatidylinositol leash. You got the phospholipase now just simply moving up and down. So it's going to generate now a mathematical space. So each point represents a state of the phospholipase because it's giving the enzymes position and momentum. So that's a state function. Accordingly, the time evolution, okay, that is the movement of time of the enzyme state function will be re represented by a line. We'll call that line being in that nature of X, which is the phase space trajectory, or simply just the trajectory of where that fossil life base can move. And so that will then demonstrate or show or obtain a phase space where the system can be at the phospholipase it is at any given instant in time, right? Because now you're moving it in time. So let's do an interrogation. Assume that at time zero, that is little t equals zero, the enzyme is located at some point x1, and then it moves to some new point x2. Remember, two dimension, we're on paper here. Now, when it arrives at time T5, the motion can be represented in the whole field X, that space, as a line segment connecting then two points. And we can call these two points Y1, Y2, right? Because now we've changed the position. So essentially, the motion of the enzyme itself is represented in that space X, right? In that field by the motion of a point representing the enzyme's instantaneous state. So that way you can collect all the states that the enzyme is in over the course of a certain what? Period of time. And that jointly will form the trajectory. Okay. So the motion of that point, we can give a name to in this, in this, theory we've been getting into now, right? Remember, we're trying to explain this according to this, um, this motion in space, right? So we're going to say that's called, that, that, that point in time is called a phase flow. And in this mathematical equation that we're going to put on, on we're going to map onto this phospholipase, we're going to call that the Greek letter phi. So phi T. So V times T, where T is time, small t. So the, what does the phase flow tell us? It tells us where the enzyme is 
at some later time t if we specify what? The initial time, time zero. Or metaphorically speaking, we can say that phi t repositions the enzyme state around in that space we called x so that the movement of the state represents the motion of the authentic enzyme. Okay, So in that way, phi times t is a mathematical representation representation, I should say, of a system's total time evolution and the state of the enzyme at time zero, we can call the initial state or initial condition, right? So that phase space then is what we want to discuss. Now, see how I did this? I mapped on this ergodic hierarchical theory from mathematical statistical modeling in a physical realm into a biochemical system. Now I'm doing that because I want to show you that that is the true dynamic of what's going on in a cell. And this is only one enzyme tethered to one lipid on one inner leaflet membrane. Now think of all the other things that are occurring just when that G-protein coupled receptor induces the activation of that phospholipase. Everything upstream and downstream from ligand binding all the way through, let's say, diacylglycerol production, et cetera, et cetera, down to uh, kinase cascades and gene expression changes. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. On uh, my son Damien's birthday, the 13th of June, 2023, saying bye for now.